Welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 11, part A, Vanity Chats, the podcast where everyone is striving for what is worth having, a fun discussion. My name is Magellan, and all these years I've loved and watched them. I wonder, did I always know that the prize I set my life on was not worth winning? Their heart clings so faithfully to a memory because that is all they are capable of. Their soul is shallow. They cannot feel a love as deep as mine, as as real as mine. The truth is, they are not worthy. They never were worthy of the lifetime of foolish love I have devoted to them. Goodbye, co-host. Let it end. It's Alan. <laughs> What's up? Hi, I'm in. T- I'm in tears. I miss you. My best friend just re- told me that I-, I shouldn't just see you as a simp. I should see you as a, a friend, potentially a romantic friend. <laughs> and maybe we can make this happen. Maybe, uh-huh. maybe this is it, baby. <laughs> maybe we can. Maybe this is vanity chats. <laughs> We're also joined by our dear friend and co-host for all of vanity chats. Tonight she is lost, but then she is found. But will she have a happy ending? It's old as your own. Hello, hello. How are you doing, Omens? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. We are, um, it's been a busy couple of months since I last saw mm-hmm. you, but mm-hmm. we are good. We're doing okay. Things are, things are, things are happening. It's hip hop happening. We're, we're doing. I, I appreciate your I am your extremely use of the caffeinated is there. what's happening. Oh, good. Me too. <laughs> I'm Alan. I'm naturally caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> my blood is my caffeine. Mm-hmm. Um, so we finished the Amazon miniseries Vanity Fair this week. We watched episode seven, Endings and Beginnings. It was directed by James Strong and written by Gwyneth Hughes. It aired on December 21st, 2018. And Alan, what happened in Endings and Beginnings? Well, my John, I'm so glad you asked. And it's worth noting that there are multiple time skips in this episode and thusly, the summary is going to jump around a little bit, but that is how the episode goes, dear listener. So please bear with me. In this episode, Becky is alone and living in greatly reduced circumstances. Dobbin discovers that Amelia plans to remarry, prompting him to finally confess his feelings for her. Spoilers, this doesn't go well at first. The Sedley family has an unexpected encounter on holiday as Becky weasels her way back into their lives. After attempting to seduce Joss, she gets back into Amelia's good graces and eventually convinces Amelia to follow her heart and marry Dobbin. It is then that we have a time skip and the two of them uh, have grown up. Becky's son has given her an allowance of the fortune of her fam of Rodden, not Rodden. Rodden's fortune? That's Rodden, right? Her, uh, yeah, Rodden Jr. is his name. Rodden Jr. gives Becky a percentage of his of the for, of the Rodden family fortune. Rodden willingly goes to Coventry Island, where he contracts yellow fever and passes away tragically. Becky is left uh, mostly penniless, but uh, of decent means for a while, thanks to uh, that inheritance. Amelia has a kid, and at the end of the series, she laments the fact that uh, her and Dobbin. 
uh, are married and happy, but he loves the daughter more than he loves her. And that's Vanity Fair. And then also Joss and Becky are in the like framing device with, uh, with the author. And that's and then they play the, all along the watchtower again. That's the episode, guys. Endings and beginnings. It's so weird. I've now watched this episode multiple times, and it's not less weird to me, folks. What's going on? <laughs> Majon, what did you think of it? <laughs> yeah. It, oh, go ahead, I Owens. do agree. Sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it did get way less weird on second watch. Because in the beginning of um, the first watch, it was very, very much like, oh, what's going to happen? Oh, dear, none of this makes sense. It was entirely unexpected. But there was a lot of context, actually, to the economic prospects that drive everybody to the decision they ultimately make. And it's less confusing the second time around. I feel like the language was just a bit difficult the first time around, Mm -hmm. personally. Uh, what did you think about all of the the exchanging of funds and the fortunes rising and falling all about in this episode? So I think we're we're sort of referencing it, but this is just for you know kind of pull back the curtain clarity. This is our like second run at doing this discussion, and so I think we're just going to naturally talk about like changes in our opinions on this episode, which can be interesting as a as a discussion topic. Um, for me. My first time watching this episode, I was really dissatisfied with it because I was hoping for there to be some kind of conclusion. (laughs) And I think when you watch it again and you're not expecting for it to like take care of your emotions in any way and you just sort of view it with the kind of ironic detachment that the story wants you to view it with, it doesn't – it didn't bother me as much. I think there are really important things to talk about with regard to ultimately how it portrays Dobbin (laughs) and his sort of like guiltlessness and Mm -hmm. how it just never punishes Becky for anything. But if you can sort of, yeah, distance yourself from those frustrations, it's an enjoyable watching experience at the very least sorry um yeah i I was just about to say i completely agree it's i don't really like that becky doesn't quite get her comeuppance in this adaptation and i remember not liking it first time around either but i know that in the novel thackeray does give um becky like her reduced circumstances are more obvious in the novel than they are really here Mm -hmm. and she does get more of a stable and concluded ending in the book I am kind of upset that they did her dirty in that regard here because one of Thackeray's main messages for the book was about like Becky is not bad for striving to be comfortable and here they kind of just leave her story very unfinished Uh and I don't like it yeah uh, yeah, what made the ending work for me this time a little bit better was the fact that if if you view this as a story about Amelia and a story about uh, her and Dobbin's romance, this episode wraps up really cleanly and says, well, Becky may have screwed a lot of people over and we're basically not going to talk about the fact that she lied to Joss and pretended to be poor. We're just going to kind of zoom on past that because it, it's kind of like setting the puzzle pieces in place. Well, she say, wasn't well, pretending to be poor. She was in as omens is saying she is in this sort of like state of reduced means at this point i believe that the miniseries doesn't do a good enough job of conveying yeah i agree with that for sure it's getting us to the point where she's putting dobbin and amelia together she's smushing the barbie and ken doll together and saying don't you idiots know you love each other 
And then they go, I guess we do. And then we cut forward and they're like, and we still do. And that is still an unsatisfying ending to me, especially when I thought that this was a story about Becky. I genuinely still feel like she doesn't get a total ending in this. If her last line is going to be her jumping out of the fourth wall and saying, well, at least we have life insurance. <laughs> I want that to mean something. You wrote that on a script and had Olivia Cook deliver that. I want something out of it. As, uh, you know, as Rodden says when he challenges uh, Steen to a, a, a duel, I demand satisfaction. <laughs> well, and I think an important thing, am I correct in thinking that the part where Becky tells Amelia, like, you need to talk to Dobbin and reconcile. We're kind of, we'll explain the plot of the episode later, but we're in this discussion right now. The part where Becky says, you need to talk to Dobbin. And Amelia says, like, oh, I already did. Is it, isn't her saying, oh, I already did something that was added in this adaptation? Or is that in the original story? Oh, you should be able, I think you know. That, that. is yeah. very much. And I think an adaptation edition. I don't mean to interrupt you, Alan. Mm -hmm. I keep interrupting you. But I think that's an adaptation edition. Yeah. So I think why that is significant is because however you feel about it, I think that that moment is meant to be like a moment of redemption for, for Becky Sharp's character. She's finally able to do something for somebody else and not for herself. And it just plays so weirdly because the way it works in this one is she's like, every woman needs a husband. Go get that man. And Amelia's like, I already did. And Becky's like, okay, I guess I'm still a piece of shit. <laughs> and there's nothing that I've done to redeem that. Not that that would have been much of a, of a redemption. But it's interesting how this, this adaptation really feels like it. a main priority is giving more agency to Amelia, which I think is a good decision. And Amelia is able to make that choice for herself. That's important. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, yeah, it does sort of take away a, a, a beat in Becky's character arc that ultimately just means that she plateaus as a character from the end of the last episode all the way through to the end of the story. Like, I, I couldn't really tell you what arc she goes on in this episode. She just kind of is terrible to several people <laughs> and then the episode ends. Yeah, and sh the way they handled like the moral grayness in this episode to me was kind of confusing in the beginning and kind of stayed confusing. I know that Becky as a character kind of has a sorry, sort of sense of remorse um when she sees the um servants in the parlor just getting drunk on her champagne um and i feel like she does have a little bit of like she she cheers up there but it's not it, it might it may or may not be genuine a lot of becky's shows of emotion in this episode are just as ingenuine as they've always mm. been mm -hmm. and i think part of the point is that like bad people deserve decent lives too mm -hmm. but also like stop idolizing these heroines i guess in combination but it's done messily here it's not done yeah. well enough to get that message right. across the the at least not on first the thackeray quote at the beginning of this episode is tonight becky is lost and then she is found but does she have a happy ending and dog i truly can't answer that from just this adaptation <laughs> i 
I don't think I do. I mean, I think she kind of has a happy ending. You know, she gets to be with Joss. Uh, and according to uh, the summary of the book, uh, I'm going to spoil the end of the novel Vanity Fair, and we can talk about this. I think we did this in our original discussion. Uh, Becky, you know, decides that Amelia should marry Dobbin, and she, even though she knows that he dislikes her, Becky shows Amelia George's note, which is saying that, like, he didn't actually love her. She uh, Amelia realizes he's not the perfect man and that Dobbin is better. They're married. Becky and Joss stay in Europe. Joss dies, possibly suspiciously, after signing a portion of his money to <laughs> Becky as life insurance, setting her up with an income. She returns to England and manages a respectable life. And here's the kicker. All of her previous friends refuse to acknowledge her. So... Becky has basically permanently burned bridges in the novel, and that's the comeuppance she gets is, well, you get your money, and you get your social standing, but you don't get anybody that helped you get there anymore. Mm-hmm. And depending on what your sort of cultural view is of success and wealth, that is as tragic as the sort of ending that we wanted, which was for her to either end up in destitution completely or like learn and truly seem like she has self-actualized and improved, mm. which is not what happens in this. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. I- yeah. Go ahead. Owens. And there is like a very sort of a special tragedy to um, Becky Sharp as a character um, because of the neutralness of that fate. Becky would have wanted something grand and beautiful. And she is, gi- she is given normalcy. She is cursed with just abject normalcy and no friends for the rest of her life. But also, Thackeray is very, very, very convinced as an author. And you see this again later, too. And you also see this as a theme in Pilgrim's Progress, which is the um, which is what Vanity Fair is based on. Mm-hmm. That, like, material wealth is necessary. Like, you money can't buy happiness but you also can't have basic happiness unless your human needs are taken care of Mm -hmm. money does buy happiness to a point Mm -hmm. and um in here i feel like the neutralness of the ending is less of a curse if you take it that way but more of a curse if you are thinking about becky and what she would want from her life and her goals yeah and i think that 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 ambiguity in the novel is, you know, that's a useful ambiguity um, to sort of have us walk away from the story thinking about what does it mean? What does it mean to have money? The same kinds of questions that we were asking at the beginning when we were looking at Amelia's life versus Becky's life and the kind of like opposite priorities that they had as a result of where they started from. And I think it, the, it's, it's just kind of uh, underwhelming that Becky's story doesn't really end in a moment of useful ambiguity like that. It ends in this cute moment of the narrator saying like, wait a minute, you're not supposed to get what you want. Oh, you, Um, which is kind of like tongue in cheek in the same way that all the moments where she's looking into the camera and shrugging and whatever are. Um, But as a story, it's like, what's the substance of that ending? And I think it loses a lot of the substance that both of you are talking about um, with regard to the way it originally ended in the book. But it injects that kind of ambiguous substance into Amelia's story, I think. Because Amelia has this ending where she's like, I finally got what I wanted, which was to have a great husband. But the problem is... 
he doesn't really like I missed the moment in his life where he loved me unconditionally because now all, his whole heart belongs to our daughter, which is like maybe a little bit hokey, but that's a sort of ending that I think there's a little bit more to, to chew on as opposed to Becky's. Um, I, I think that's, I, I agree with that. I, I, I appreciated that line much more this time. Uh, the mm-hmm. whole, I, I missed the chance. It's like, you got the romantic comedy or the romantic movie boyfriend ending, but you came to it late and it's like, well, I got him, but I didn't get the chase. I didn't get the, you know, the, all they got was one scene in the rain in this episode, which is a not my favorite scene, but she just literally igno- either neglected to, to show appreciation for him or pushed him aside as a friend for years. Like, one of my one of the most challenging things when examining this episode is remembering and keeping in your head that we're watching years pass in these people's lives, and that's a problem. That's hard to parse, partly because the makeup in the show and a lot of the costuming simply doesn't change with the times. <laughs> like they just don't look older at all, and you know it it solidifies more that if you were reading this in a book that like Dobbin has been at this quote unquote friend zone thing for years. And when you see it like that, then it's like, oh, yeah, all of our 20s are gone. We missed all of that. And we're married at whatever. I don't know exactly how old uh, they're supposed to be at the end of this. But we're in middle age and now we just have it. They're supposed to be like 20, 28 at the end of this. Okay. At least in terms of series canon. Mm-hmm. They're like 28. So they missed, yeah, they missed the courtship And games. they were married at 18. So they missed their entire 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that that worked really well. I thought that they, there was some poignance to that, despite the fact that you know, I don't adore that Dobbin just gets the thing he wants. Uh, right. It feels a little bit right. sappy in moments here. So, yeah. uh, oh, but John, you were going to say something? Oh, well, I just think that that's a really important criticism of this story that probably goes all the way back to the original novel and isn't sort of native to this particular adaptation. But Dobbin is a reprehensible character <laughs> when it comes down to it. Like, he has done some incredibly selfless things. He's supported Amelia and her son when they didn't have other support. He has been a good friend in certain ways, but he, like Amelia's right to criticize him when he comes back and he's sort of like, I'm here now. And she says, okay, why why weren't you here earlier? Why didn't you say what you felt and what you meant? And why is it that now you waited around long enough and you, you know, earned all the points you were supposed to or whatever, and now you just get to have her? That's not how it works. And it's upsetting that the story ultimately doesn't, like, criticize Dobbin and doesn't criticize that that speech that I repeated at the very beginning where he's basically like, well, you, you don't – you don't even get it. You don't even feel love. Like as soon as he doesn't get his way in the relationship or can't control it, he it becomes her fault. Yeah, it becomes her fault. He throws a fit, and he's incredibly immature. And it's like, where is the moment where this guy gets criticized for acting that way? It doesn't happen. Yeah, it doesn't happen. It does not happen. Um, Omens, what did you think about the the stuff here with 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 Dobbin specifically as a character? Do you feel like he got the sort of like moment he deserved, or or in, if anything, how would you have done this differently? 
Okay. So, first of all, I do not like the way that Dobbin just absolutely victim blames Amelia in Mm. the way that she is processing her grief and the way that she deals Mm -hmm. with George. Like, if he doesn't want to marry her, he should have just accepted – or if she doesn't want to marry him, he should have just accepted it by now. He is stuck waiting for someone who doesn't even want to give him the time of day. And it's stupid. But, like, for Amelia, she needed those economic prospects. Because if he, if he had just stayed in England and, told, and communicated his needs to Amelia mm-hmm. and been like, hey, I love you. I can provide a life for you. Problem solved. <laughs> the thing that I can't deal with is that he let her suffer for 13 right. years. Because he's like, what if she doesn't like me back, though? <laughs> he has the audacity to tell her, I bought your piano, you know. And she breaks down. She's like, no, please. How embarrassing must that be? As if you're Amelia for a moment. To be like, this guy, when I was like, you know, falling into poverty and my cherished possession was bought by a mysterious man. It turned out to be my friend who just couldn't tell me. And 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 we could have spent years being together. That's the moment that I feel I feel bad for Amelia. Also, mm-hmm. is it's it's the sort of toxic relationship thing of I spend money on you. Why don't you like me? And it's like, dog, because you did it like mystic. You did it behind my back. It doesn't work like that. This is like, uh, yeah. you know, right. you, you yeah. don't earn it that way. If you do something nice, if you do something nice, you got to communicate it to get the recognition. You're not just gonna swoop in and like have her like magically figure out it was you if the man that she's engaged to is an entirely different human and she like like how little Dobbin is on Amelia's radar (laughs) just (laughs) constantly baffles me and I don't even give because like apparently they've been friends since they were children or whatever but like she should she should figure it out by now Mm. I, I think there's an interesting comparison to me made between Rodden, actually Rodden and Becky and then Dobbin and Amelia. I think that that's obviously what the episode is doing and what the story is doing. But the first act of this episode completely focuses on Rodden realizing that all that's left for him is Coventry and Becky realizing that uh, she needs to she, her, you know, the fortunes are not falling in her favor anymore uh, yeah, because we open essentially what I'm oh, sorry, you're going to do it. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, initially, we have a couple of scenes with Rodden meeting uh, Butte um, and talking about his son and how much he, he wants his son and wants to take care of him and be a father again. Basically, Rodden is searching for a purpose in this first act. Uh, and we contrast that immediately with Becky just screaming at her, chi- at her child. And uh, Rodden has this great line where he says, uh, Mother is the name of God for children, and my boy worships a stone. Or he did. He got over it. We both got over it. We're no longer basically saying like we're no longer at the point where like we have a maternal figure. We no longer I no longer have like a spouse who cares about me. We are so far past that and I need something else to live for because in a society that tells you to like fall in love with this person and be with them, that didn't work for me. So just cut that whole life option right out of there and mm-hmm. I just want to be a dad, please. Mm-hmm. But he can't and and he's he's looking for or even mm-hmm. Yeah, or, um, well, and, and yeah, he, you're right in that he, he's forced to not be a dad due to Becky's actions with Lord Steen. 
he's forced to give his child up to relatives and that is like the most difficult decision that he will have to make like Amelia does but at least the relatives that he gives Rodden to are relatives that he knows and likes at least to an extent yes there's that great I think it's actually nice that uh, when they oh, well, well actually I think it's uh, Amelia's cousin or whatever George's sister who has that child and has that scene where she's like you guys should go on vacation and that brings us to, to uh, the fake town of Pumpernickel Germany or whatever later in Acts 2 and 3 Pumpernickel Germany is an extremely real town. <laughs> really? I looked it up. It said it was. It said it yes. was fictional. It's ex- um, Pumpernickel bread is from Pumpernickel Germany. No, that's. Are you sure? <laughs> I did the research. <laughs> yes, it, it was an old. It's an old name for a town that was a, that, for a town in East Germany that was given a different name. Okay, I believe you. Under the Russians. But they go to Pumpernickel later. But before we get there, uh, just a Don't great, they say great scene. Or am I wrong? Pumpernickel. No, they Because cause they do make a joke about the bread at some point, I oh. think. So we'll, excellent scene. Speaking of finances and fortunes falling and whatnot, uh, revealing to us that Becky has not been paying her servants at all. <laughs> and they all are, you know, rising up and saying, well pay our wages and you won't see us for dust we're leaving this isn't your house anymore becky (laughs) miss sharp like (laughs) and she's just completely at a loss for words because this is a woman who knows how to uh, control people with money and when she doesn't have money she has no control so she's watching basically all of her societal tools and resources fall from beneath her uh and so i just found that scene really really satisfying because the show has done an okay job of showing what uh you know that servants exist and that we saw Sam early in the series, completely off the map at this point. But, uh, you know, this is important. I'm glad this was in here. I don't know if this is from the book, but uh, shout outs to all the servants serving the, you know, Victorian literature heroines uh, of all of, of, all of uh, these books and, and whatnot. Actually, the servants uprising is actually a historical thing that would happen. Yeah. If they didn't get their wages paid, the way that they would resist would be to go upstairs Mm. and start partaking in the (laughs) larder because they were the ones that had the Uh keys. And you can Mm. see this in a lot of 18th century political cartoons and in a lot of servants' manuals or like manuals for the women of the house as they became a thing – And even in Mrs. Beaton in the Victorian era in the 1860s, always pay your servants wages on time, Mm -hmm. lest they become rebellious. (laughs) So much, much less than just being a horrible human being, Becky is a horrible housekeeper and other people are relying on her income and she is not just ruining herself. And look at that collective bargaining where everyone's like, all right, well, you don't want to pay us. We don't want to work for you. Done. Bye. <laughs> this wor- this works. It works sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. But uh, and then getting back to the class stuff and going back to Rodden and his sort of journey uh, barreling towards Coventry. Uh, he does go to Steen's Manor um, thinking he's going to fight him. He says, I demand satisfaction. Um and you, we, we get a brief shot of Steen in his little castle upstairs, rocking the, like, crisp blue dress shirt under the black jacket, looking like an absolute anime villain or something. Um, and I love that even his servant is told, don't let this guy into our house, don't let him fight us. And he says to Rodden, such as you are insolent, sir, to be crushed beneath his lordship's feet. And he closes the door in his face, and him and Butte are like, 
all right. <laughs> I don't get that. I don't get my kid. I don't get my wife. And here's, okay, this is what bums me out. And I want to, this is a question I'm going to propose to both of you. So Butte, actually, uh, to, before I get to my question, um, Becky begs Butte to bring her hub- husband home. She's completely lying to this guy, being like, oh, I miss him. Uh, Martha throws in one more jab, saying that your soul is black with vanity. Finally, somebody calls out our girl Becky. <laughs> um, and then Butte has this like really t- great tender moment where he hugs Rodden because he realizes that this is the only person left in his life. They've never had a good relationship, but it's like, well, you got no one else. This is family, at least. Mm-hmm. And my question is, Butte doesn't discourage him from going to Coventry. Not really, at least not in the scene. It's pretty brief. Do you think it's realistic that a vic? I think he's a vicar. I'm pretty sure uh, Butte is implied to be, or at least a re- or a, in the religious community. Um, do you think it would make sense for him to be like, yeah, go serve your country and and good luck? Because they should know, common sense wise, that going to, I mean, going to quote unquote going to Coventry. The reason it's called that is because there was an old saying called going to Coventry, which means you're going to go die. Um, so do you think that he knew that? And do you think that he would have said this as a religious person to be like, well, I'm a, you might as well go die then? Or is that unrealistic? Rodden is disgraced. Rodden is a disgraced member of the family. Becky has ruined his honor. He will never get that back. He is like Prince Zuko, essentially, <laughs> <Get him. laughs> um, calling back to season three. And um, so Rodden is going to Coventry Island and Butte is not discouraging him because Rodden is then out of Butte's hair and out of society and no one's going to be talking about him Mm. anymore. Yeah, I think the thing to really emphasize here is the tragedy of Rodden's character is that he's ultimately – he's a victim of his social status to a certain extent and to the sort of like gender politics and – wealth politics of of it um because he simultaneously has to fulfill this sort of expectation of like being a man um which is a gendered thing and also a matter of his family's reputation and uh at the same time he is of a lower socioeconomic status than lord steen and so lord steen is able to manipulate that and use that against him to because steen is the one who has him assigned to essentially this like suicide position to get rid of him and to avoid having to have any sort of later kerfuffles with rodden and rodden has to take it because it's his only path to having any sort of respectability restored to his name at all it's the only path he has to be a man in the eyes of his station, his society in any way. And so Butte gives him this look of like, you really going to go, but doesn't stop him because he knows that like, there's no other way for Rodden to have his honor and die with that. than to sort of walk into this death sentence with his chin held high. And so that's what he does. And he dies (laughs) ultimately. It's a beautiful scene too, where he, the music swells and, uh, you know, he hugs Butte and, and, and goes there. And then we cut to him later after, uh, I think it's after the four-year time skip. Uh, and he contracts, as expected, contracts yellow fever and, and dies there. Uh, but the true tragedy of it is not that he got sick and died and not that he knew he was going to. 
but that he sees Becky in his dying moments and calls for her through the curtains. And we cut to her and homegirl just doesn't, she is not thinking about him. (laughs) And it's so sad. Like I was listening back to our old episodes and we, I I still believe that there has been love between the two of them at some point in their lives, like genuinely. And maybe that fell away. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I was a bit too uh, like optimistic about that. But that, that moment truly felt like they were saying, yeah, she just didn't care. She was looking at fabrics. This guy's dying over here, and she's looking at fabrics. <laughs> it's like that scene from Joker. <laughs> uh, but again, a time skip does happen. We jump ahead four years, and uh, we start in India, uh, where uh, Joss and Miss O'Dowd and uh, Dobbin are there. Uh, Joss is announcing something. I love the comedy here where he says, uh, you know, my sister, she's, and then Miss O'Dowd, the queen herself is like dead. And he's like, no, to be married. (laughs) Don't be weird. (laughs) And this is another scene where it feels like they just pumped the gas too hard to get us to the next big scene. Cause she's like, Oh, Dobbin, I know you love Amelia. And he's like, damn, you do know that Miss Miss O'Dowd. He says like mother of all of the soldiers, you do know me better than I know me. And I needed someone to tell me that. And she's like, you big idiot, go over there and stop the wedding. <laughs> and it's like, it feels like I'm watching fucking, um, not Almost Famous, that's a good movie. What's the Christmas movie about all the loving people? I love Actually. <laughs> it feels like I'm watching Love Actually, where it's like, I'm going to chase you through the airport and then tell you I love you. It's goofy to get us there. That permits so dad to be like, come on, dude, you got to do it. And he says, all right, I guess I will do it. Like, I thought that was silly. What about y'all? It was silly, but it's, it was, it was, it was, it was very Austin-y. Yeah. And we just need to remember that this book is a satire. Yeah. Uh, I think the, the, as a satire, getting us there makes them a little bit more sense. I do, I have like neglected to think about that a couple times. Um, But it's just like, it's ridiculous. And it honestly makes me want a sincere version of this that doesn't rush us to like, and everything's fine. It like, I want to see these moments happen a little bit more. Um, weirdly, my biggest criticism of Vanity Fair, the, the miniseries, is it's too many. Like, maybe we maybe we would do better with more, like, learning about who these characters are. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we say that a lot. We've been saying that a lot on season 11, Michelle. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But worth, worth bringing up. Uh, but anyways, back at home, now that we're several years later, Amelia's mother, Louisa, has died. She visits the grave with her dad, and they're talking about fortunes and family. And then Dobbin and Joss arrive, and I th- just throwaway line. Speaking of like time is going by so fast in this series, they're like, "Oh man, that was a crazy five months." <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that travel takes really long. <laughs> they were gone for five. They were doing this for five. Um, how many times in those five months can you imagine that he was like, "Oh, this is probably a bad idea." <laughs> like, <laughs> what if I go- what if I messed up? Because if he was like, "I'll go," and turns around and did it in five minutes, I- it's easy. But five months to sit on a boat and stew on your words. Every day for five months. Yeah, because what do you expect is going to be true when you get there? You heard that she's getting married. And so you're like, all right, I'll go stop the wedding. That will have happened four months prior by the time I arrive. (laughs) It's like, what's the plan, bud? There is no plan. I mean, Usually, when this is the reason they plan weddings in advance, and so that and all the old boyfriends period, and lovers they would be can planned come even more it. advanced. <laughs> yeah, because speak now or forever hold your peace is still a thing right. for a reason. For four months. 
of course elopement but true but true true they're not gonna do that Do- dobbin's actually really happy uh that amelia still plays this piano and when he reveals that he bought it uh she's like ah, oh, but you can't you can't just do that for me you have to tell me that because i didn't know about you this whole time she says george is my husband here and in heaven forever cut, cut to five minutes later <laughs> it just feels like <laughs> again uh uh she just is like changing her mind really fast because we're we're jumping forward really quickly. Um this part does feel a bit satire though because the rain when they're talking and having this like romantic drama scene is it's pretty fake. It's pretty much like it is now raining and time for us to yell about our emotions. Um but I still enjoyed the effect of that cuz then they're like oh summer in England or whatever and he's like I do love it more than anything else because you're here. Anyways, um so Dobbin attempts to propose to Amelia and then she's just like, I guess you can stay because we're still family friends and you did travel for months to come here. Um, and then he goes to Lord Osborne's house and he's like, hey, Osborne, I've been paying some of your bills. And uh, Lord Osborne, the absolute king, one of his last words in the series, uh, Dobbin's talking about Amelia and whatnot. And he goes, there are other women, man. I love that <laughs> line so much. <laughs> he just <laughs> takes a big swig and looks at him. He's like, oh, yeah. man, buddy, you got it bad. <laughs> try try a dating app try like one dating app <laughs> maybe put an ad in the paper put an ad in the times uh-huh. of london yeah you'll meet hot 30 year 32 year old johnny flynn seeks um claudia jesse-esque human yeah needs perfect eyebrows to date um uh, and so uh, Osborne reacts to this and then we cut to him later and he just dies. He like drinks and overreacts. He's looking at the fact that he crossed off George's name from his will. And in his his sadness, just like Padme herself, uh, he dies of a broken heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we jump to uh, George Jr. Uh, and Jane, who's leaving for Bath and leaving uh, Amelia with her child finally. Uh, and she says, tear down those dusty curtains, hire some servants, and go on holiday. And I really wanted them to, like, put on some lays and, like, get, like, a, like a boat drink or something. But in, in you know, medieval England, not medieval, excuse me, in Victorian England, a holiday is Pumpernickel, Germany, which looks the same, but everyone speaks German. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so we have the whole gang. They had like one street. Yeah, they have one street. Exactly. Well, yeah, they might have honestly used the same. They might have actually used the same set, to be honest with you. Um, but Joss continues to be uh, queer coded as hell and spends this whole scene being like, ooh, waistcoats. Oh, my God. Waistcoats galore, man. And his dad is like, ah, I got to go take care of my son. <laughs> so that's like Joss's last moments here. And then uh, Becky does approach Amelia and company sort of a shadow for former self. I think this is like a famous uh, image from the book is Becky approaching Amelia in her like black outfit. And it's the classic, like there's a good one and a bad one. Did you guys get it? Hmm. Show's not very subtle to be honest with you. Uh, But George, Georgie, George Jr. Do we like Georgie or George Jr. for his name? Georgie's cute. George Jr. (laughs) Ooh, conflict. Uh, I'm going to keep calling him George Jr. for now. Um, But Georgie... (laughs) George Jr. pursues his mysterious hooded woman, which is Becky, uh, into a gambling den. Again, not subtle. She's wearing a mask. She's like, oh, ho, ho, Mr. Baby George, hello. You may have one little kiss. And then she drops her accent and he goes, what happened to your French accent? And she's like, uh... (laughs) Uh, <laughs> like the mask slips a little bit 
And then uh, I think Dobbin like takes him out and is like, promise me you'll never get into gambling. Again, reminding us that people who gamble are evil um, in the eyes of fa- of the story, at least. Uh, but also he ain't like, you know, they've had uh, de- dealt with Becky's husband and whatnot. They know that the evils of gambling. Um, Josh stays behind and sees Becky. She does the whole thing with him that we talked about earlier. Uh, Magellan, I was surprised you didn't call me uh, what she tells her that he is now, which is the magistrate of Bundle Gunge. <laughs> it's a close second. I, I like how she's like, ooh, Bundle Gunge. <laughs> Very, she gives us a look into the camera like, did you hear that? Bundle Gunge. Bundle Gunge. She's got a Bundle Gunge, ladies. Uh-huh. Uh, and she talks about gambling and stuff. And then, yeah, he goes to her house and uh, not her house, her apartment. And uh, so she is actually not doing well financially here, but she also, she's highlighting that she might have she must have missed him because she keeps an old painting of him or of the a guy on the elephant that they had talked about in episode one. And she's like, see, I've, it's my most prized position. I missed you. And he just falls right into it. I feel like Joss is one of the simplest characters in this show. Like he just doesn't get the complexity or the arc that everyone else does, which is a bummer because I liked Joss a lot at the top of the series. Um, but he just doesn't have a lot to do. And uh, he comes back to visit Becky. They talk. Uh, he convinces convinces uh, Amelia and everybody to visit her. Dobbin's like, no, she's definitely lying. And then we get to Magellan's favorite line of the episode where, uh, <laughs> actually before that, I thought it was very funny when Amelia's like, oh my God, you have a son now? Do you have a lock of his hair? And she's like, the fuck? And she's like, <laughs> trust me, every mom you're does need that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we all do. When you clone him in the future, yeah, when he's dramatically yourself. ripped away from you and you cry for years and years, you're going to want that. You're going to want my, the, he's, my he's advice from one mother to another. <laughs> Keep that boy's hair in a locket <laughs> or something. Um, but yeah, then Dobbin is like, "Yeah, Amelia, you don't, you don't know how to love. I know how to love, and you wasted it. You are never worthy of the lifetime of foolish love I devoted to you." Again, five minutes later, they're going to get married. Like, some of the dramatic irony of this episode is lost when you know where it's going to go. <laughs> You're like, yeah, good luck, guys. Um, there's some really great music here. And then, yeah, uh, uh, Rodden dies. Sad, sad. Calls for his his wife who doesn't love him. Uh, and then I was, I was looking into Coventry Island trying to see if it was a real place. Again, it's just based on a saying. Nothing special there. And then this is, okay, guys, this is where Vanity Fair goes from like, a pretty grounded dramatic romantic comedy series, whatever into like Goofyville. Uh, we jump a little bit further. Becky's son is again, the heir of the rod and fortune. And it's like this narration from this like eight year old. Who's like, good, good afternoon, mother. I am young, uh, Rodden and I have the fortune and I will leave you $10 a year forever. And that's all you get. Don't ever talk. Don't at me. I'm blocking you on Twitter and you can't follow my Insta. <laughs> But uh, definitely check out my TikTok, and uh, here's my Fortnite dances piece. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, although he is like 13 at this point. Okay, he's and a teen. They would have been, he would have been leaving for school at this point, mm. so he would have been expected to be writing letters that eloquently. Mm. Yes, true. No, I, I don't. I'm not doubting that he's an adult. I think it's just more or adult in the eyes of the society. It's just more silly that like he they turn him into yeah. like an as if he's a grown ass man right here, and yeah. he's like, "Good evening, right. mother." It's just weird. Yeah, yeah, and he, they, they they treat it like he's a grown ass man, and that that's funny. That's really really amusing. Yeah, I agree. But um, I am I am saying that like from from a historical perspective, it it's 
He's like 13. Gotcha. And this is about uh, this is about two years uh, before they invent the floss also. So. Oh, so you can't be Fortnite yeah, dancing. But it, two years. Yes. Well, let me crunch, the crunch the numbers real quick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> like they would be doing like Sriracha to Coverly or something along right. those lines. That's yes. my preferred dance in Fortnite. <laughs> Which is actually an awesome dance, but... Uh, Becky and Amelia here have a scene that reminds me of when Magellan and I talk about girls, which is that she's like, <laughs> she's like, Amelia, why are you so stupid? And then she, uh-huh. Becky, Amelia's like, what do you mean? She's like, you know that Dobbin loves you and that your husband, your ex, your dead husband hated you, right? She's like, no, yeah, I did know that. She's like, why did you, why did you deny yourself happiness for so long, babe? And she's like, I don't know. I just don't know what I want in life. And she's like, go marry your bae, your bae, babe. You go write him a letter. And then she goes, I already did, babe. And uh, is this, is again, this you I, admitting that you have big Amelia energy? Is that, is that what you're saying? Maybe. Uh-huh. Perhaps. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I do work well hard on my eyebrows, man. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I did think it was funny that she was like, I already wrote him. It's it's kind of the all call now <laughs> of this uh-huh. episode, uh-huh. which is like, I already called. And then uh, Becky calls her a shameless forward hussy. She's like, you're bad. You're as bad as me. And I'm sitting watching the episode saying, no, she's not. (laughs) No, she's not. Not even close, dog. It's fine, actually, to do. We fully enter the realm of fantasy here. Not fantasy. I just thought this was so goofy. This last like 15 minutes here. George Jr. and Amelia await Dobbin's ship in the middle of the night. And Becky walks away all happy. And then George is like, what if he doesn't come? And then Amelia's like, then it shall be no more than I deserve. And it's like, what is this? Why is she now like regretting her? This I guess she's regretting decisions still. Uh, it's just very weird. And then the weirdest scene of the episode, the final like dramatic sting w- lit like it's an Instagram filter. Uh, Dobbin and Amelia have had their kid and he's like dancing in the field with the kid. And she's sitting with, uh, I believe it's Briggs and also Becky. And then Becky's kid uh, is like doing archery uh, with Dobbin's kid, other kid, maybe. And it's just like, it looks weird. It feels like I'm looking at a flashback. And also, what happened to Becky having an arc? What happened? What, did you guys forget that Becky has an arc? It's supposed to like get some, it's so Omen, oh, do you have any way to parse the scene yeah. as, a, as a bit more studied on the like, story? Like, it's not very studied at all. Okay. And there's nothing very like it's 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 a slapdash mess essentially. Um, we're introduced to Becky as a character, and then she just isn't given an ending. And I know we talked about this a bit in the beginning, but um, the way that it kind of reframes the story to be about Dobbin and Amelia doesn't sit well with me. Although the Instagram filter is quite pretty and funny. Yeah, it's pretty. The way it's like shot is done really well. And, like, the flash forward is cute, but, like, it's not the ending that we need. Yeah. It's – I don't even want to get into, like – I don't want to spend the next 15 minutes being like, how would we have ended Vanity Fair? Because we're talking about the show that exists, but definitely more punish punishment? Is it – okay, question now. Now I've opened up a can of worms. <laughs> is it the Christian in me that wants to see the bad person get punished or what? Or is it just the part of me that wants to see that in, like, stories? I think that's a story thing, um, really. And it's not even that I want – I guess I do want to see Becky punished to a certain extent. But I I more so just want to walk away from the story having, like, thought about something interesting. And it's not that 
interesting or thought provoking for me for her to walk away uh, unscathed and be like, well, guess I did it. I had some bumps in the road, but my manipulations ultimately were successful. And I walk away from that thinking like, okay, I don't really know what that does for me as a story watcher, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I wonder too, then if like, if what what do what do academics think about this book where does it fall in the in the grand history of like british literature because to me it's like oh it's a satire that occasionally is very affecting and, and emotional kind of like hits the absurd beats really well and then ends like so clean that it's almost funny and so then my question is like was it supposed to be absurd is this supposed to be funny and weird because we also jump again, like I said, to the Thackeray framing narrative where uh, Becky and Joss get on the the the, the carousel, and uh, he's like, "Nobody's supposed to enjoy themselves. Nobody's supposed to come out well from my Vanity Fair," and then they just like smile and enjoy the the, the Ferris wheel. And like, what what do we? I want to pull something out of that. Maybe I know we talked before about how the Ferris wheel is supposed to be the endless. Uh, carousel of life the of of love and romance and tragedy and how it's going to always repeat itself um but that almost feels a little bit cynical to me and you can never get off Mm -hmm. yeah you can never get off he says it so fast and she that's why Um, she's like it's fine i and i do however like what the weird thing is vanity fair is like based around like the beautiful town of um like delights that you can never ever ever escape from and it shows them at the end escaping the bloody carousel Mm -hmm. and i'm like you missed the entire point (laughs) the entire point is that you can't get Mm -hmm. off Mm -hmm. true 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 and um i feel like that's kind of the way that this adaptation handled the book in itself like you got the plot you've seen the plot but you don't get the deeper thematic elements that made this so integral to english literature and to just the western canon in Mm -hmm. general because it's meant to be a parody it was a popular novel released in installments as a parody so then i think and it just doesn't work because what i what i have found in my brief googling about this this book and the series is discussion and discourse about Becky Sharp as the sort of classic problematic fave character. And Mijon, I was peeking at your notes, and it sounds like you and I both agreed that, like, I like Becky, but I don't want her to succeed in a sort of, like, six, you know, hate him so much that you have to love them away. I kind of just come out of this disliking her. So I don't consider her a problematic fave because she's not a fave. (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird middle ground because she's not... It's not so fun to watch her be bad that you can enjoy it in that way um, because it's – I don't know. There's just also characters that are like having normal lives and normal stories right next to her. So, I think it – I think this adaptation ultimately wants for – wants to try to infuse the story with the kind of like isn't it so fun how chaotic Becky Sharp is. And it, it's not really. It's kind of sometimes fun, but not all enough. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Like, I look back at the moments from the series that I really loved, like Steen coming into their house and then, and like, uh, Rod and finding out about the money, uh, or 
you know, Becky at the beginning in the in the in the school and like teaching the girls to love French or teaching the Rodden or Rodden's like family to you know, manipulating them and whatnot. But uh, it's kind that's kind of what Vanity Fair ends up being. It's a game. It's a game. It's a sh- it's a story about I mean a manipulative person and what would happen to that person in a heightened version of reality in a parody like Omens of saying version of reality. Well, they would get what they want until it kind of screwed them and the, it screwed them, and then they'd have to learn to be nice. Uh, or not, I guess. It's complicated. And in that way, I appreciate it. But uh, I didn't get as much out of this as I wanted to, ultimately. And maybe that's on me, but uh, I found this inter- challenging in an interesting way Yeah. to appreciate and to discuss. Yeah, and, and part of that is definitely on the adaptation. I yes. mean, the literary criticism on that book fills multiple journals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, like, literally, the amount of literary crit done on Vanity Fair, the amount of analysis done on Vanity Fair, is like thousands of pages yeah. long. Who knows? Um, but this adaptation, again, is 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 sort of surface level, and it gets the plot, but it misses a lot of what makes the plot resonant. Mm-hmm. And that's that's difficult, especially when you're analyzing a series like this. And when there's just like like there's so much potential there, but there's not nearly as much to work with as you think there would be. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to make a great point. Um, does anybody have any stray notes about this finale before we call it a close? There are other TV shows, man. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. I mean, there are literally. <coughs> yes, just kidding. Just kidding. Um, Owens, you got anything? Oh, Owens Costume Corner. Owens Costume Corner. Nah, that's it. Oh yeah, but this is just re that we they rewore costumes this time around. Yeah. yeah. You got your purple police. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite thing in the universe. The cartridge pleating at the back is still the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. Um but and like I loved the way they costumed some of the extras in this. Like some of the servants, like the caps were A plus. But for Becky, it's a lot of rewearing the same garments as she wore before. And I love them. They're beautifully done. But it got to the point where, like, it was like, oh, I have costume fatigue now. Hmm. Because no one's buying any more pretty dresses. <laughs> right, right, right. And there's a lot of, like, mourning outfits in this and religious outfits from, like, Butte and Martha. So it's not exactly the huge highlight for, yeah. for like, top tier outfit mm-hmm. work, but. I always appreciate the analysis. No, but the outfit work is obviously stunning. I love the fabrics that they use mm-hmm. on, and I love the way that the fabrics sort of play with the color palette in this series. Amelia's outfits are actually really, really fascinating to me because yeah. I noticed that in the rain scene, she's not really wearing black. She's wearing dark blue. True. True, true, true. And usually she'd be wearing like black or gray or violet but it's part of how amelia kind of gets dressed by the lighting the lighting in that room is gray so you don't really notice it just looks black but they would never put her in something like black like full-on black because that would just be too harsh for this sort of lighting and setting right so the way that they play with that and the way it's very cohesive is always really fun 
that's all I have. <laughs> it's like I said, much appreciated. Um, cool. Well, Medge, I think it's time for us to talk about what we're watching next time. Sure. So you might think that we're done with Vanity Fair. You might think, oh, you said at the beginning that there's other miniseries. I think the Angels of America is next. Shh, stop it. No. Quit it. There's one more episode of Vanity Fair. You're not off this carousel yet, baby. <laughs> because it turns out before they made a show, they made a dang movie. It's got Reese Witherspoon in it. It's from like 2000 something. And uh, 2004. 2004. Great year. <laughs> oh, man. What an awesome year 2004 was. Uh, we're going to revisit it by watching that version of Vanity Fair. Is it? Are we going to like it more? We know. But you are going to find out. So watch it Watch it with us next week. My teaser for next week then is what if Vanity Fair, but make it Bollywood. Yes, <laughs> that's that's true. Uh, I, which, which I honestly was, was deeply here for. Yeah. Um, Good pitch. Execution? Question mark. Pitch. Here for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pitch A plus execution. Not sure yet. Well, we know, but we right, don't right, know yet. Right, 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 right. All right. Well, I think we can take it to the plug zone if that's okay with y'all. Yeah. Um, let's talk about what where you can find chats on the internet. Chatspot at gmail.com is our email address. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, we're on Twitter at chatspod. That's C H A T Z P O D in all instances of chatspod. We have a community-run subreddit. Uh, it's reddit.com slash r slash chatspod. And as of this release, they are about a third of the way through Avatar The Last Chatspender, our third podcast season, which I'm learning, re-listening to and really, really liking. Uh, you know, I feel like I, we always talk about when we found our, our, our sea legs and whatnot, but season three is very funny. And we're also talking about a good show. So to all those people who say that chats is only good when you suffer, take that. Um <laughs> Um, while taking that please also consider uh, rating us on your podcast platform of choice Apple Podcasts uh, we're on Spotify follow us there uh, get the word out and if you'd like to support us financially we have a Patreon that's our main source of income from the podcast it's patreon.com slash chatspod and you get an abundance of bonus content bonus pods a patron only discord and more for just $3 a month at patreon.com slash chatspod uh, Magellan, it's yeah. time for chat sums. Do it. You know what that means. Tell me what your chat sum is this week, friend. My chat sum for this week is a video game uh, that I haven't been playing much recently, but I was playing a lot uh, when we took our first run at this. Uh, it's on the Switch. It's also on the computer. Uh, it's a roguelike called Dicey Dungeons, and the. Uh, the fun of Dicey Dungeons is that it's a it's a roguelike where there are basically six different characters, uh, and each of those six characters have six different chapters to their story where the rules change, and each of those characters play very differently from one another. Um, the runs are pretty short, so if you if you enjoy um, dice based kind of deck buildery type of things and you like seeing game systems varied and twisted in interesting ways i think dicey dungeons is uh, definitely worth picking up and checking out 
I love the art style of Dicey Dungeons, and the little bit I played of it was really, really fun. Yeah. Even as somebody who hasn't been into a roguelite in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, oldest Year Omens, it's Chasm time. What do you got? Um, I really, really enjoy the um, sea drama, The Untamed. My friend got me into it recently, and um, it is, I'm not sure if it's 40 or 70 episodes, but it's pretty long, one season, and um, it's about a demonic cultivator who gets reincarnated into the body of a disgraced clan leader in a fantasy version of medieval China. And it's cool as hell. And there are a lot of really awesome gift sets and stuff on Tumblr. And um, it's just a beautifully, beautifully done series. Um, I'm not usually big into foreign TV, but um, I'm starting to um, just try and figure out like how other cultures interpret their own history and legends mm-hmm. is always really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, The Untamed. It's 50 episodes, by the way. I just double-checked. Um I've watched a little bit of The Untamed, okay. and I really like it. Obviously, I'm a big, uh, I'm going to just say, I'm a big BL fan. Uh, this is technically a BL. At least the original web version of it was explicitly, and then they got censored uh, to make it homoerotic subtext. Um, but I really love the costuming in this. I've Again, I've only watched the first episode. I really want to see where it goes. Um, and this recommendation will hopefully push me over and get me to actually watch the rest of it. The Untamed. It's a cool show. Nice. Um, yeah, it's a really cool show. I'm Alan, and I have a chatsum for y'all. <laughs> a simple chatsum. Okay. Uh, it's a YouTube channel that was recommended to me by my coworker. Uh, it's called Like Stories of Old. And, you know, we talk a lot about vloggers uh i've talked about vtubers before uh music videos and stuff we have so we have a broad spectrum of things we like on youtube um video essays are big for both Magellan and i though and uh like stories of old a single gentleman i believe uh and he talks about movies but specifically focuses on the philosophy uh discussion with films um he's done a lot about like movies from the last 20 years like interstellar and like shawshank redemption which now that i'm thinking about it is more than oh god Twenty years ago, <laughs> um, and and my favorite video of his, the one that got me into it, was uh, about stoicism in the film Gladiator, which I haven't even seen, but you just got to check it out because he has this way of like editing quiet scenes from movies uh, under his narration in a way that's really like artistically well done, um, regardless of what you think about stoicism as a philosophy. Uh, he's got a broad spectrum of stuff. He's still posting pretty regularly on his channel. So if you're looking for something heady and kind of thoughtful, check out Like Stories of Old on YouTube. And hey, guys, that's what we got. I want to say thank you, as always, to Omens for joining us for the episode. Um, Do you have anything else that you want to plug for people? No, I do not. Um, You can find me on the chat's Discord. I'm there all the time. We have fun. Um, I don't really do personal social media that I share publicly. Perfect. Love it. Yeah. That there you go. That's a double that's a double uh plug for the Patreon. Uh because then you get the Discord, which is a lot of fun. Um and Magellan, I want to thank you as well for being the rock to my hard You're place. Welcome. I mean that truly and sincerely. And hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Vanity Fair. Stay sharp. Bye bye. <laughs>